I could not be more excited about today's morning show because we are going to be talking about something that is very important to me and my life and I know very important to many of you as well. But in some ways, the most important aspect of this interview is for all of you who maybe do not see yourselves as particularly creative. It is the contention of my morning show guest, award-winning journalist Matt Richtel, that all of us are creative beings, even if our professional lives are not devoted to something that we immediately think of as creative. And more so, it's not just that all of us in one way or another are creative, but that it is woven right into the fabric of our being, that even on a cellular level, we were created to be creative. And uh, it is something that is at the heart of the human experience, and certainly very much at the heart of human history as well. And Matt Richtel, who is uh, a science reporter primarily for the New York Times and a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter, uh, has written a fascinating book about this called Inspired, Understanding Creativity, A Journey Through Art, Science, and the Soul. And in his book, Matt Richtel seeks to disavow us of some of the really careless assumptions that we make about what it means to be creative, who is creative among us, and the function of creativity in our lives. And one of the things he also talks about is that, although it might seem like a scandalous thing to say, creativity is in and of itself not inherently a good thing. That sometimes creativity is used for for uh, evil pur- purposes, or uh, creativity uh, can certainly have unintended consequences that can cause widespread misery and harm. So creativity uh, is something that we need to understand on that level as well, and not uh, blithely assume it to always be a benign and positive force in our lives. Uh, the book is absolutely fascinating, and in the course of it, he speaks with a number of different creative people, including people that we would immediately recognize as creative forces, and others who are creative or who are creators in, in kind of uh, less conventional fashion. The book is published by Mariner Books, again titled Inspired, Understanding Creativity, A Journey Through Art, Science, and the Soul. And Mac. Richtel, we welcome you back to the morning show. Hey, Greg. Thank you for having me. And thank you for your introduction. It was really nice. <laughs> well, I really, really love the book. And as somebody who uh, does is privileged to uh, live a life of, in which I get to be openly and extensively creative in, in all of my uh, professional endeavors, uh, it was really great to read this book and understand more about what creativity is all about. My understanding is that the genesis of this book was uh, an article that uh, I assume you wrote for the New York Times, which circled around uh, some of these issues of creativity. Can you tell us about that uh, initial effort? Yeah, I got I, I got interested a couple of years ago in um, the idea that people seem overcome with moments of creative inspiration. And I guess maybe I would put this to you for a second as someone self-described as creative and absolutely creative. Do you know that feeling you get when you have a bit of euphoria that says, oh my gosh, I've got an idea? 
Yes. <laughs> I'm not sure there's a sweeter feeling in the world. <laughs> okay. So for those who have had it and for those who haven't had it, I will explain the origin of that article and in some ways the book by telling you a story about Charles Schultz, the creator of Peanuts. Hmm. Um, some years ago, I did a syndicated comic strip, and the company I worked for, United Media, had an editor named Amy. Amy had been Charles Schultz's editor, and I said, tell me about Charles Schultz and Peanuts. She called him Sparky. That was how he was known to his intimates. And this is the story that she told me. She said, every morning, Sparky would wake up, and he'd go, oh, my God, I have an idea for the perfect comic strip. And he would set about writing. And he'd finish it, and the next morning he'd wake up and he'd look at it, and he goes, ah, you know, that was pretty good, but that wasn't it. Wait, I've got it. I've got an idea for the perfect comic strip. And I have experienced that type of, like, I could bust through a wall to create this idea, and I need to feeling. And I asked myself, what is this? What is creative inspiration? And as usual, when my curiosity gets going, it's hard for me to tackle the, the, the core question without understanding the universe and I went down the rabbit hole of understanding the science of creativity. What is it? How does it work? Why is it elusive? And then finally, who are the people that do it? And what characteristics do we understand about them? And four years later, we're talking about a book. Wow. I love that. Uh, and I'm yeah, well acquainted with that uh... That, that process. I want to talk for a moment about uh, one of the things I said in the introduction, which is that so many of us tend to have a very limited notion of what creativity is and, and who is creative. Um, and uh, tell us, in a sense, how wide a circle you want to draw when it comes to creativity and who is creative. Yeah, I mean... And you articulated this so beautifully at the beginning. I'll see if I can replicate it as concisely. It entails pulling apart a couple of pieces. But first of all, for everyone listening, I would say almost without exception, everyone out there is creative by nature. I'm going to break that down a little bit, but um, broadly speaking, let's start that with there. And then let me hit at a couple misconceptions. First of all, creativity is not measured by fame or fortune. And in fact, those things are fleeting. One of my favorite stories in this book is that I'm, I'm going to start writing it, and I'm playing basketball with my then 11-year-old son, now a teenager, in front of our house. And I say, hey, I'm going to interview Bono the lead singer of U2. And my son says, is that a him or a her? He's got no idea who Bono is. That has passed. Bono is doubtless creative. So for those of you who say, well, it's only creative if it gets on the map, get rid of that misconception. And you've got to get rid of the misconception that creative is something that leaves its mark even in history, as Bono has done or Elon Musk, or go down your list. 
Einstein and so forth, because all of those creations are built on something else, and in fact, on top of a lot of something else's. So the contributions that any of us give during a moment of time ultimately pile on each other, one upon the next. And I believe it might have been Galileo who said, my creations stand on the shoulders of giants. He may have been the first to say that. So let me just start there by answering your question. Everybody, small, counts. And it's in us biologically, but since I've been long-winded, I'll pause there and say that's the universe. Hmm. It's kind of what it's all about. And, uh, and, and you say even down to the most sort of basic biological functions, that in and itself is an example of creativity that we don't consciously... Uh, set into motion but it is woven into who we are i'm so glad see i got excited i had an idea you you sparked an idea because i'm really glad you keyed on that and maybe listeners are saying that really sounds far-fetched to me what do you mean let me i went all the way into the cellular or level to explore what creativity is and the way i did that was visit with a a biologist in Switzerland who puts bacteria in a vial and bombards them with antibiotics to see how they respond. And he uses this as an exercise to understand creativity on a very small biological level. What do I mean? Well, if you put bacteria in a vial and bombard them with antibiotics, it's basically like nuking them almost all of them are going to die. But a few of these organisms reproduce in a way that creates a random mutation that lets them escape from the nuclear hellfire. That is the most basic representation of creativity, and here's why. If you look at us as human beings, we come up with random connections of ideas, just the way you have a mutation in a gene. We come up with ideas, we connect dots, and all of a sudden we've created a survival advantage. And that happens on a subconscious level, behind the scenes in our brain, not always obviously, and you might say, well, gosh, we're not always just surviving nuclear hellfire. I would make it, I'll connect it all the way to you open the fridge and you got nothing for dinner and your kids are yelling at you and you combine some uh, ingredients and you've created a meal. That is a very distant version of that thing. Hmm. At one point in the book, you say creativity comes from our most essential survival machinery. We are creative machines. I think that's really intriguing because I think there is a very common kind of creative sort who would probably bridle at the notion of utilizing that kind of terminology to characterize uh, creativity. I mean, I think you know what I mean. Uh, yes. Some, uh, one kind of a creative soul uh, probably you know, avoids the technical and the machine-related and sees, uh, and sees uh, creativity as something... Uh, in, entirely apart from that world 
And, and of course, you're using terms like machinery and machines uh, in, in, in a little different way. But explain why you think it's important for us to introduce that element, that terminology uh, into the mix. Well, I do think some people who fashion themselves creative or who have succeeded tend to lend a, a, an idea of mystery to this. And I actually don't think it's quite that mysterious. It's not, it's not the province of the genius. In fact, you'll see in this book, among the many studies, one that shows that having a particularly high intellect makes no difference. And, and Greg and I, as your, as your guides here will tell you, you can just be of average intellect. No offense, Greg. I'm right <laughs> Very there with true. You. Very true. <laughs> um, but, um, but, but, but I think what stops people isn't innate ability. What stops people is a couple of factors that interfere with one's ability to tap into that random connection of ideas that I spoke of earlier. Um, and, and this is very real. This is a so if you're if you're out there saying. Well, I've I've wanted to try this creative thing, but I I get in my own way. I say no, that's not perfect. That doesn't work. In point of fact, that's much more what stops us from tapping our innate creativity than is some lack of fundamental ability. And in fact, I know many people who are say in big fields in Hollywood in writing circles in other places that have tons of tools and block themselves from tapping the the breadth of their creativity out of certain kinds of fear. Would it be okay if I got to the science of that really quickly? Sure. Well, one of my favorite studies, and I get into it early in the book to explain why we don't tap our creativity, has to do with... Um, what, how we actually view creativity on a subconscious level. Everyone says, oh, not everyone, but most people say, creativity, wonderful, that's great, let's do it. Oh, who doesn't want to hire a creative employee? But a group of scientists have done a series of studies where they look at the subconscious bias against creativity. They run tests using sophisticated computer modeling to look at how people feel when they're sort of reacting without thinking about it, and they draw associations between creativity and toxins and poison and, uh, and vomit. Now, do you have a theory, Greg, on why that might be? <laughs> Not off the top of my head, no. Okay. <laughs> well, it's very powerful that we see creativity as extremely disruptive. Mm. And it is disruptive in a lot of respects. Let's just take something as simple as Elon Musk, or not at all as simple, however you want to see it. It's just simple in that it's, an, it's a big, grand idea, who I write a little bit about in the book. Here comes the battery-powered car. You have to think that when Elon Musk was hit with that idea, it was the kind of euphoria we described earlier. And he goes about and starts to transform an industry, among others, but it means changing jobs in Detroit, changing jobs in Germany and other auto-making 
giant countries. It means changes indirectly to the fossil fuel industry, which means lost jobs. There's no way to see major creations in our world without thinking of them as both incredibly, um, as, as, as pushing progress and destroying what was already there. And if you look at that on an individual level, when you see new creations in our lives, they force us to change. And change is hard, and you could even say change is a kind of death. So, on a basic level, we resist creativity because of what it represents. And then there's another key reason we resist creativity, but I don't want to put people to sleep. So should I get into the mind-wandering <laughs> science or yield to you? Well, I just want to first uh, step in to, to read one paragraph in which you talk about this, and I, I think you say it, I mean, it just underscores what you just said so very well. You write at one point uh, in the chapter from Cradle to Muse, creativity is disruptive. Creativity means changing how we relate to the world, go through our day-to-day -day lives, what we eat, listen to, watch, how we interact with one another. Creativity changes long-accepted behaviors, technology, and basic social contracts. It can be wrenching. And so, in other words, when we understand that about creativity, then we also understand why we tend to pull away from those creative ideas, uh, big creative ideas, that are going to transform all kinds of things. And uh, that is a scary prospect. I suppose some people, maybe relatively rare individuals, might relish that opportunity, but I think most of us are wired to be cautious or wary of doing something like that. And that's at the societal level. That is experienced on the individual level when it comes to allowing in thoughts that break the patterns we have come to accept as part of our lives. Meaning, if you are taught to think a certain way, these are the rules, this is how things are done, the act of allowing thoughts in and, and embracing those thoughts um, that, that break basic status quo rules in your head is actually hard. One simple way to think about this is that um, mind-wandering is a portal into creativity. So if you were – and I'm, I'll give you a very concrete example of this in a second, what, that, what I mean by that, because it sounds – I need to break it down. But if you let your mind wander, it will go to places that may become uncomfortable. I'm not supposed to think that. That's an amoral thought. That goes against the rules of the system. Why would I ever think about writing a song or starting an app or creating my, new, my own business? I'm going to shut those thoughts out. And the first step in stopping your own creativity is failing to observe, listen to, or honor those thoughts. Now, Greg, I would ask you, how did you get past that? <laughs> well, sometimes it's, uh, I, I guess sometimes it is out of necessity when there is a really pressing need for something new. Uh, that, would be, that would be an occasion that would allow me to kind of rise above those fears and reservations. Was it something, do you think you were taught to be accepting of thoughts that may be outside the rules? Or do you think you 
somehow came to that through um, trial and error? A little bit, I would say a little bit of both. A little bit of both. Uh, and and I, I think I'm kind of a mix of my mom and dad and, uh, and, and, and some of those tendencies to pull back versus forge ahead. Uh, and I suppose a lot of people are kind of a messy combination of, of those. One of the one of the interesting bits of research is that a lot of people do not like sitting with thoughts coming in. And in fact, letting a, a mind wander oftentimes becomes a worrying mind. And so people will do activities to avoid letting their minds wander. Mm. I'm not going to get into all the science, but there are a bunch of ways um, here, because I don't want to be too long, too um, because it might take too long. But in the book, it gets into some steps people can take to tap into those thoughts. And it's where those moments of explosive excitement come. Because what happens during that period is you begin to let dots connect. Moments of information, emotion, uh, fact collect together, and suddenly people get hit with something, and it can be all across a range of ideas. Um, I'd like to give an example of, uh, you mentioned I talked to lots of celebrities in this book, and, and, I, and I do. There's Yo-Yo Ma and, and Judd Apatow, the comedic guy, and Steve Kerr. And I, Am I allowed to mention Steve Kerr sure. in Milwaukee? <laughs> you are, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see you on the other side. Right. We'll see you in the in the finals, um, right? Uh, and but but I want to tell you about Mike Lee, who you've not heard of, but is a an inspiration to Rich's story. Uh, I know him because he's just he's I knew him as the regular guy who is the father of a friend of my son's at school. What I didn't know is that in about 2003, Mike Lee was going to get married, and he had a feeling that a lot of us have when we got, get, get married. I'd, I'd like to look a little slimmer in my tuxedo. He just had an authentic feeling that didn't feel very good, and he went to, the, he went to 24-hour fitness to get fit, and the person there said, oh, you got to count your calories. And handed him a piece of paper to count his calories on. And Mike thought, wait a second, I know how to do a little bit of programming. This is the 21st century. I'm, I'm going to try to do this on my computer so that I don't have to fill out a form every day. And he ripped up the piece of paper and he went home. And I'll spare you the long story, which is just a thrilling, inspirational story, but he and his brother sold their company, MyFitnessPal, for $500 million to Under Armour. <laughs> it didn't come from anything other than an idea that he was smacked in the head by, allowed in, and followed down a 10-year path. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Matt Richtel, and we are talking about his amazing book called Inspired, Understanding Creativity, A Journey Through Art, Science, and the Soul. Uh, in which he uh, examines uh, a lot of the assumptions that we make about what it means to be creative, who can be creative. I mean, he disavows us of all kinds of myths, including at one point when you say, uh, 
we often assume that creativity is is for the few, <laughs> and uh, and creativity is part of all of our lives, whether we uh, like it or not, or understand it or not. I, I wanted to ask you about another myth involving creativity and creative people that uh, that you you try to disavow us of, and that is this notion that we have of the creative genius being kind of a solitary figure. Uh, locked away yeah. in their studio or, or uh, locked away up in the, in the attic uh, doing creative things in kind of a splendid isolation. And, of course, what your book examines, and we've already touched on this, is the fact that so much of creativity, especially in its most successful or, or sort of influential fashion, uh, is done in, in wonderful collaboration, although we don't often think about creativity in that in that uh, realm of the collaborative. I start this book in Jerusalem, and I, and I think the first line in the book is, is uh, King Herod was the Steve Jobs of his time. That's what a, my guide told me as I walked around Jerusalem, and I wanted to go there because it is the center of so much phenomenal creativity it's the ultimate industry town and the industry's religion and the books are the most read of all time by which i mean the bible and i thought about that quote um king herod was actually a pretty vicious um person but did a lot for the building of the innovation around building of cities and architecture and I started to think, was King Herod a genius? Was Steve Jobs, were they singular geniuses? They obviously were doing something very right. And that's when I stumbled on the research that said the reason Jerusalem was so rich with ideas is because it was actually pretty highly populated. It had 500,000 people, which was big for the time, and they were all talking about ideas around where human beings came from, the nature of our essence, was there a god, what was the nature of that god, and ideas came from collaboration, cooperation, and competition. And if you look over time, even though a, a genius, quote-unquote, or an artistic or, or tremendous uh, intellectual force of creativity may appear to be isolated, he or she exists in a really rich stew of people thinking about similar ideas. Florence, Harlem, Russia, France, Hollywood, Silicon Valley, New York with the financial industry. These are people who are cooperating with ideas in the air and competing with ideas in the air. And to that end, Greg, I will make this case. We are in the single most creative period in human history. Why? because we are so connected with our devices that we are, I refer to the world now as the new Jerusalem. I like what you say when you talk about Jerusalem as being, uh, it's saying throughout history there have been outposts of explosive innovation, hot spots of creativity, cooperation, and fierce competition, and you list them uh, and, uh, and explore the legacy that, uh, that each of them have. When it comes to what limits us uh, in terms of being creative in our own lives, one of the things that you point to uh, is perfectionism, which I believe at one point in the book you call the number one enemy 
of creativity. And in fact, I think you go on to follow up by saying there isn't even a close second place enemy. I mean, for perfectionism is such a, a dampening force when it comes to our own creative uh, uh, exploration and uh, creative uh, attempts. Uh, One tell- of my favorite stories mm-hmm. involves Einstein, um, the scholar who studies the greats says Einstein goes to a colleague once and says, oh, my gosh, I've got the unified field theory, finally. And the colleague says, Albert, nice, but under that theory, the universe can't exist. And what we know about creators, those we remember and those we don't, is that quantity is what defines them, not quality. Creators tend to come up with tons of ideas, and many fall by the wayside, and even the ones that do often are driven by a sense of excitement. Here's the thing. Creativity, by definition, involves going into an area where there hasn't yet been an answer or if there's something new. How can you possibly know if it will work until you try it? So by definition, if you're determined that that thing be perfect, you can't create it in the first place. You have no idea. This shows up in so many ways where people start to second-guess themselves so early on in a creative process, creating an app, creating a business, creating a, 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 an artistic experience. Perfectionism is the number one enemy of creativity, and there is no close second. Hmm. I'm reminded of, uh, I'm at some point in the book, uh, where you're kind of talking about what creativity is, uh, I believe you quote Albert Einstein as saying, creativity is intelligence having fun. So in other words, creativity and intelligence are not exactly one and the same thing. Uh, but of course they are they are linked but the idea of of intelligence having fun i suppose one way to think about that is intelligence throwing off the shackles of feeling like it always has to be right or yeah. has to seek the perfect uh, that creativity is about in a sense play and about allowing things to happen including things that ultimately will will fall away but one thinks about the freedom that is involved in that yeah, and um, I mean, if you want if you want to feel patriotic, and I happen to, um, it is a really neat thing about this country, where you've got a lot of a lot of pioneering spirit. Um, so that's just one aside. But but if you think about just pure intelligence, pure intelligence might be able to get the test answers right. But now you're talking about having fun at the same time. I don't think of the SAT as particularly fun. I also think, so that I'm not dismissing the value of the structure side, that when creations work, they often marry uh, an understanding of the structure of the world with a new twist. So it's not that you're just creating something out of whole cloth that has no connection to the world as it is. Quite to the contrary, creativity that has an impact, and I would argue 
that that um, that the very definition of creativity is n- novel with some impact on the world, good or bad. It has to connect to the structures that already exist, and that is where intellect plays a role. It's just that it's not the only role, and it needs to be combined with fun. Hmm. The comments you made earlier about how, in some cases, uh, great achievement partly comes from kind of the quantity of our ideas, that we don't just wait for that one perfect idea to come, but we we generate all kinds of ideas, some of which are better than others, and some of which ultimately fall away, and while others kind of carry us forward. I'm reminded of one of the most amazing creative explorations of my own life in something away from the radio station. I'm also the minister of music at a, at a church and uh, do some composing for my church choir. And one of my, the members of my choir came to me with an audacious idea and said, what if you were to set about for this next church year to write a new piece of music for us every single Sunday, week after week after week? And, uh, and his, and his, uh, his idea was that that something about that, and maybe even something about the framework of that, would allow creative juices to flow in a sense more freely. And I think he didn't. I don't think he said it at the time, but I think part of it was uh, also a letting go of the this need for perfection or achieving the highest pinnacle of excellence at every turn, but just by being comfortable with creating. To that extent, that would kind of change it. And I ended up doing that. And I did it for not one year, but two, <laughs> where I created some kind of new piece of music week after week after week. Well, and that it, is, that is, I wish I would have interviewed you. That is a, that is a great story. And I, let me ask, um, what, what resulted from it in terms of um, your experience with creativity how often did you do something that really um, moved you? Um, I don't know. Just tell us a little bit about that. It's such a wonderful example. <laughs> I'm glad you think so. Uh, I, I would say one of the things was that just by creating to that extent, uh, I became kind of more acquainted with my own creative juices and maybe my yeah. own creative process and it also became uh, a bit less intimidating. Uh, it uh, it it allowed me to kind of approach uh, approach the each and every project. I think with a little less sense of monumentalism uh, and and more of a sense of of um, okay, it's this Sunday. This is the lesson. Uh, I mean, this is the the scripture lesson, and uh, I'm going to take part of it and set this to music. And here we go. And uh, and in a sense, it kind of lessened the uh, the sense to which each each and every undertaking was kind of a, a big ferocious uh, challenge. But I became, in a sense, just more comfortable with being creative, and and at some point had to let go of that kind of quest for perfectionism. And uh, and I look back, and uh, the legacy is, I should think, uh, checkered. I don't think anything I wrote was awful, but not everything I wrote was wonderful. But but it's like that was okay. There's plenty of music in the world that isn't particularly wonderful. But but there was something about just uh, allowing myself to live within that framework that really did 
changed the way I approached it, uh, I think, for the better. And although I, I haven't... I think, mm-hmm. I'm sorry to interrupt, but you just, you're hitting at something so, so important, and I almost have never put words to this. I don't think I've put words to it before, but I think another reason we fear getting into creativity is we're going to discover that we're not going to get discovered, um, that we're just a regular old creator. I sent you that piece of music. I, I, to, for the listeners, I told Greg before we got on, I wrote a song to go with the book. I write a lot of music. Um, it's, been, it's been humbling and gratifying to realize that um, cr- writing music is a blast, and no, no, no one is ever going to call me Paul McCartney. <laughs> and so I realize I'm doing that largely for me, and I may uh, create some songs that people like, and you may, may create some people songs that people like, but we're just very human in the end. And what that goes to is that being creative means setting aside some of your ego. Hmm. You really got to lay yourself bare and say, this has its own value, the experience and the process, and it may or may not come to fame or riches or recognition. I just want to point out one key piece of research, Greg, and I think it's a place probably you and I connect on. The research will show that people who allow themselves to be creative are happier. Maybe that's the punchline of this whole thing. I think in my own journey where I had a big bunch of creative blocks, it's how I know about on a visceral personal level all the stuff we're describing, and I found a voice inside myself, creators are happier. They feel less burdened. They feel more in touch with the world around them and more able to share with the world around them. I like that. I like that very much. And and one of the things you, you talk about in your book is how uh, when we look at people who are exceptionally creative, you write at one point, these creators tend to exhibit extraordinary curiosity, humility, and openness to discussion and ideas and interests that go in many different uh, directions. So, yes, uh, exactly the opposite of that isolated genius up in the attic uh, you know, this kind of creator lives lives in the world. It's interesting. I'm reminded of something else. This was wonderful advice I was given many years ago by the uh, American composer and arranger Alice Parker. For many years, the uh, composer in residence for the Robert Shaw Chorale, one of the best choral groups in, in America. And when she came to Carthage College, where I teach many years ago, and uh, it was my wife who actually had the guts to ask her for uh, advice for an aspiring young composer, meaning me. And, and Alice Parker's advice was, write for people you know. Write for the local high school choir or write for your own church choir or write a solo for someone for a voice you know and love because then you're not trying to write some wonderful song that the whole universe will fall in love with, but you're crafting something in connection with somebody else. And that proved to be probably the single best advice I've ever gotten as a composer of, of writing, in a sense, that's in response great, to the talents of others. That's a great nugget. That's mm-hmm. a, just a great nugget. Because I think when people go to create for the universe, they get out of their own voice and try to mimic something that somebody else has done. And for people listening, again, it's Greg and I are talking from personal experience about artistic matters, but this would apply to to you know, creativity cuts across every medium. 
So it really, you can see this in, I don't know, I, I say one of the biggest places I see it is with a lot of, of entrepreneurs I know. Um, they are they are such optimistic, fired up people, and they really are into what they're doing, and it's kind of thrilling to watch. Well, and one of the words that comes up uh, a fair amount in your book is hope. That yeah. at, at the at the at the heart of it, creative endeavors are about hope, and and the hope that something that we are creating is going to make some kind of. Uh, positive difference uh, in the world around us, and uh, and and maybe that's part of why creative people are often uh, happy, even though of course the creative process can sometimes be unhappy and frustrating. But at the heart of those who create is this sense of there are yeah, possibilities I, for things to be even better in this world. I, I think that first of all, I write very early on. There's a lot of bad news in the world. This is not part of it. I mean, I wanted, I didn't want to write a book about hope. I just realized I was right because I, I wasn't putting the – I was putting my own sense of optimism first, not a desire to write a book about hope. But this is, this is a good news book to my mind. And I, and I want to get at that tension that you just mentioned about, um, you know, sometimes people who are creative are seen as struggling or wrestling – Two things can be true. I think there's a moment of inspiration for, let's talk about all the startup people that I know here in Silicon Valley um, who are so fired up. There's also a time when some of those ideas don't work, and there's a reckoning with that. And just like Charles Schultz, who we started this conversation with, he woke up the next morning, he's like, oh, no, not quite it. Wait, I've got a new idea. It can be true that you can be disappointed by the challenges of, that idea not working as you thought it should have. But it doesn't do away with the optimism and hope that came with the idea that that spurred it or the next idea that will follow. That's kind of what it's, uh, that's what it's all about. By the way, in the chapter of the book called Laws of Nature, you kind of talk at one point about the place of or the relationship between uh, creativity and for instance, someone for whom their religious faith is really, really important. And uh, I appreciate the, the care with which you write this portion of the book. And, and by no means do you say that one kind of cancels out the other or negates the other. But there, it is possible for one to have kind of a religious framework that in a sense is rigid to the point where you are consciously excluding uh, ideas and influences and possibilities outside of that strict yeah, framework. So this, is, this is some research by the guy who did the toxins and poison research, and it's it's easy to oversimplify um, what, on its face, what the research showed was that people of profound faith um, can have can experience a limitation in their creativity, but there's a it's easy to oversimplify that as saying, oh, if you're religious, you're not going to be as creative. That's a bunch of hogwash. And you can see a trillion examples of why that's not true. The really big takeaway, if you peel back the, the, what that research says, is two things. On the biggest level, if you have a really, really rigid worldview, 
it is quite hard to let in ideas that run afoul of that world view. And so that could be any rigid worldview. And let's just take let's take the the an example right now of the extreme partisanship. If you are so partisan on one side or the other that you can acknowledge no value in what in some of the ideas of the other side, it's very hard to broaden your perspective enough to see that there may be a lot of valid viewpoints in the world. That's a rigid worldview. It's also true what the scholars say that it really depends in this instance with this worldview around religion how you perceive God or your God. Is your God one that encourages human creativity and inspiration? Or is your God one that says there is only one way to do things? And if you even so much as think about an idea outside the lines, you have violated your covenant with God, that is by definition going to limit how far you can go outside those ideas. Does that make sense? It does. I think you're saying that very, very well. And it also explains how, you know, some people find um, one of those contexts to be very, very comfortable, and others would find it terribly stifling. And, and also it, it points to the fact that, that, uh, that it is not kind of a black and white thing and that, and that uh, even the sort of freest spirits uh, are living with a, in a context that they're not always uh, fully aware of. In fact, I want to read uh, the very end of this particular chapter uh, in which you say this. All of this discussion about religion underscores a larger point, which is that all creations exist in a certain context. A big takeaway for me is the is that the ideas that stick around, the ones that strike a powerful are the ones that strike a powerful balance between being novel and being relevant. And uh, yeah. and of course that is really intriguing as well because I think we sometimes kind of sloppily or carelessly think about creativity as mostly about things that are brand new. And this circles us back to the point that in so many cases what might at a glance seem utterly new, utterly fantastic and fresh, is also built upon uh, all kinds of other things that have come before it. Yeah, a absolutely. And, and you can't disconnect yourself from the world you live in. And it's almost impossible to do so. When I go talk to little kids about um, and ask them to just come up with what I, whatever ideas they want to come up with, um, and we play a game called What If, and they, they say they get to finish the sentence, you know, with all kinds of, what if you flush the toilet and you wound up in outer space? And one of the things I realize as they start following this what if exercise is they ultimately come and tell a full story. Uh, they might bring that flush toilet back down to earth and into our lives, and if that if what I just said sounds crazy and inscrutable, there's a, a bit of a chapter on that very story. But the point is that we internalize the structures of the world around us. So it's not often that we come up with ideas that are so insane, so crazy and far-fetched that they don't connect to the world. And in fact, for them to, to really catch on, they've got to have a lot of the real world in them, but enough new to strike a chord as being exciting or uh, a form of progress. Mm. Well put. Towards that end, 
I think it would be interesting to just spend a couple minutes talking about your conversations with Golden State uh, uh, Warriors coach Steve Kerr, who you say at one point is someone who is exceedingly open in a jock culture that can be very closed. What did you learn about creativity from uh, basketball genius Steve Kerr? Now, again, are we are we running afoul of the <laughs> Wisconsin audience? Are, are there going to be nasty cards and letters to me? I sure hope not. I sure hope if, not. <laughs> if, if, if we're closing up and you do want to send me nasty cards and letters, I, Greg, I'm going to give you my email for anybody who wants to send anything. It's my name, mattrichtel at gmail.com. But I, I will tell you that Steve is a, a great, great guy to talk to because uh, you, you have this impression that he's going to be this distant giant um, who's shining you on and not really interested in your time or you taking his. But he's so curious about the world. He wants to know what I'm doing. He's, he wants to kick ideas back and forth. And the way this showed up in the form of an NBA championship, and now I can't remember the year, um, that it was their first it was the year of their first championship and they I know everyone there knows these what these numbers mean they'd won 69 games they'd had a crazy year and yet they were down in the finals 2 to 1 to LeBron and the Cavs and playing in Cleveland and Kerr realized he had a problem and he wasn't quite sure how to solve it because they'd gotten to 69 wins in a in a sport where 50 is like the 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 mark of greatness or excellence and he wasn't sure what to do because they'd run up against LeBron and there was a guy in the video room of the Warriors who happened to see some tape of how Greg Popovich had covered LeBron in prior times and it involved a long story short the video guy sends a note to Luke Walton who's Kerr's assistant coach in the middle of the night Luke Walton mentions it to Kerr. Kerr says, wow, that's a good idea. It involved changing the starting lineup that had gotten them 69 wins. And I won't, spare, I won't tell the, the whole of the story, but they go on to win the national championship. And their new, the guy they inserted into this starting lineup, Andre Iguodala, wins the MVP. And what's interesting about that? Well, after the the series, they say, Kerr, what, what, a, what a great idea. He's like, well, it wasn't mine. <laughs> and the, the thing is, here's a guy who's so open and so humble. And, look, he built that team, and he built it with Curry and others, so let's not take any credit away from a guy who's just a, a master. But he's also open enough to hear ideas that come from somewhere else and put them into a structure he created and win an NBA championship. That's a, a really nice indication of the wide range of your book. And although yeah, you and I spent uh, a fair amount of time talking about uh, creativity as it uh, plays out uh, in the, the realm of music, uh, that your book is also about entrepreneurs and, 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 uh, and athletic coaches and, uh, and, and great thinkers and, uh, and, and bloodthirsty rulers and, and many, many others who have all engaged uh, in this life-giving yeah, anybody, uh, listen, exploit of creativity. Yeah, for anybody, ruler, this is the one book you'll, the only book you'll ever need. <laughs> yeah, there are some really interesting stories. And again, it really uh, expands our notion of what creativity is is all about. 
I want to circle back here at the end to uh, back to fear. Uh, and one more story about my own creative exploits, if you don't mind. Uh, oh, please. So this yours, was so far yours are the best story. <laughs> uh, several years ago, uh, at the school where I teach, where I coordinate the opera workshop program, we had a strange situation for the J Term Opera, where uh, we had uh, seven women registered and eleven men. I mean, it's probably the largest group we've ever had, and. Uh, for the women, I already knew, oh, this, we have just the right women to do Puccini's Sur Angelica, this beautiful one-act opera with a cast for just women. And it was I was excited it would complete the trilogy and so on. But what in the world do I do with these 11 men who have registered for Opera Workshop? And it sounds crazy, but the simplest solution was to create a new opera for these 11 men. And, uh, and with the stage director, who had some experience as a librettist, uh, I brought this crazy idea to him. I really was scared to even say it out loud. He was crazy enough to agree with it, and the two of us ultimately uh, created a one-act opera called Black September that was about the experience of the uh, hostage crisis at the 72 wow. Olympic Games in Munich. But what was so interesting about that is that up until that point, although I'd done a little bit of composing, it would never have dawned on me to try to write a one-act opera. I mean, the very notion was just out, outlandish, outrageous, and, uh, and talk about scary. When we said the first day of class that January, I had still not written a single note of music because Matt Barese, the librettist, had not yet written a single word of the libretto. So it was not till the following Monday that finally we could start giving these 11 guys bit by bit this score as it took shape. It ultimately got finished. It was ultimately performed. It was very well received and a powerful experience for these guys. But again, that was uh, a, a, a step into the unknown that was necessitated by uh, by a need and uh, and that's something else that your book explores is that sometimes a desperate need for something to be created is is all that's necessary for someone to push past their fear and to uh, give it their best shot yeah I, I think that I think that is very true you could see a trillion examples in human history where terror of annihilation like that bacteria, caused great innovation look at the the birth of the antibiotic itself you know by um by fleming um but i want to point out something else is you still had to be receptive to that greg i mean i i'm really uh, you know in in our with our prior conversation and before this one i had not realized that there's probably no better person to be talking about this with you than you because you are to, to the audience in Milwaukee, I, you guys are sitting on a creative powder keg there with Greg. <laughs> like, these are ideal examples. And even though you had a need, there were other ways to solve that problem. You had to be receptive to the idea of going for it. Mm. Well, um, I'll tell you something else. So, I'll, I'll tell you something else. It made all the difference in the world to be, in a sense, part of a community, and in this case, a college and a music department, and with a supportive collaborator and students I knew well and for whom I was crafting this and who were appreciative right from the start and hopeful. And uh, I mean, I think all of that, if I had just been locked in a room, I think fear would have frozen me in place. But uh, that sense of connection with others who 
who I knew would be supportive uh, and encouraging every step of the way. Uh, that was essential, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. No. You. You. It's a perfect. It's a perfect example. I don't think necessity. Th- this is how. This is. I. I've tried to reframe the phrase necessity is the mother of invention. I think authenticity is the grandparent of invention. And I think without the authenticity first, yours and your ability to receive that information and channel it, then the necessity doesn't get solved that way or solved at all. So I, I think I think there's a forebear to necessity as the mother of invention. It's authenticity. I guess it's what I'm saying in this book that I think everybody has. The secret I, I note in this book, the secret ingredient to creativity is you. And I think to the extent we can find that you, um, like our great-grandparents and their great-grandparents found it in, you know, getting on planes and boats and, and crossing oceans, that's what we can do now um, in, our, in various creative spaces. Hmm. Very well put. Uh, your book was a, an amazing experience for me to read. I mean, I, I found that I just learned so much. It helped me understand where I've been, where other creative people I admire, where they are coming from, and and this great mystery that is uh, woven into all of us, whether we are even aware of it or not. And I, I appreciate the wide-ranging uh, nature of your book, and yet its focus and cohesiveness. You've really achieved something special with this book, again titled Inspired, Understanding Creativity, A Journey Through Art, Science, and the Soul, published by Mariner Books and the author Matt Richtel. Matt Richtel, our listeners probably will find it hard to believe, but we've just scratched the surface in this wide-ranging conversation in terms of all that's in your book. I congratulate you on uh, giving the world a really important book, and I'm really glad we could talk about it today on The Morning Show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Grace. So gratifying. Much, Really, really appreciate the conversation.